Welcome to the Fit Vegan Body Podcast with your host, Aaron Cattell, the vegan coach. The point of this podcast is to give you an in-depth but practical approach when it comes to losing weight, being healthy, or gaining muscle on a vegan or plant-based diet. We will have guests every single week to help clear up any confusion and make sure that you are 100% confident in your choice of your lifestyle. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Fit Vegan Body Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Gemma Newman. How are you? I'm very well. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Thank you for joining me on a Monday Monday evening, pulling you away from your kids and everything. It's my uh, absolute pleasure. Don't worry, they are supposed to be in bed, although if one of them comes down, I might, you know, might take a two-minute break. <laughs> <laughs> right. Now, always I start with something fun or interesting about you rather than going straight into your story, which probably you've told countless times to people. So I had two questions I thought of. The first one I wanted to kind of know about your email address, Gemma's, Gemma's new man. Um, <laughs> I was like, surely she's made this when she was like younger. Um, so. Well, actually, it's, it's very boring because my name is Gemma Samantha Newman. <laughs> ah, okay. So it just... When I, when I have to describe my email address to people, I'll say Gemma's new man, and they kind of remember it, but it's essentially just Gemma S. Samantha Newman. <laughs> Maybe a dot or an underscore could go in there to like separate. Oh, it could, have, it could have done if I've been that clever. Oh, Wouldn't yeah. have been as fun, right? <laughs> okay, cool. So for people that don't know who you are, what you do, um, I guess plant-based doctor, I am, I am. How did you, I guess, first decide that you wanted to get into medicine and how come the plant-based side of things? Because as we know, there are many doctors and they're all different fields and they all decide on different things. So why have you decided to do what you do? Well, that is an excellent question. And it's one that I've answered many times, but whenever I do answer it, it does come out slightly differently. So I suppose... Um, in order to answer the initial question, why medicine? Um, that was always some kind of calling for me. Um, I, I remember actually, uh, there was a time where our next door neighbor, she was elderly, she fell over um, outside our house. And I just remember having this instinct to immediately want to go and help her. And I had ordered my mum to go and get some towels I think maybe I must have watched something on the telly where people got the <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, So there was me rolling up some towels and trying to help this lady press them on her head where she was bleeding. And my mum just stood there. I mean, I must have been about five. And my mum at the time, she was so young. She was probably about 24. And she just stood there looking a bit bemused, thinking, I don't know what to do. And I said, no, call an ambulance or something. <laughs> I don't really remember exactly what happened at that time, but my mum was just, um, she said, oh, wow, that was amazing. Wow, you should, you should do that maybe when you're older. And then I guess that was probably a first seed when I look back on it. And I haven't told that story before. <laughs> um, um, and I think my role probably growing up was very much um, the caring role, I think, towards my mum and towards my dad. My dad suffered from quite severe mental health problems. And so I was not so much a caring role in a sense because I was so young, but it has, I suppose looking back on it, it was really more of a sense of not feeling as though I could help and wanting to. 
um, and then being being that sort of support to my mum, and then that was what came naturally. Um, and coupled then, I suppose, with um, a feeling of um, wanting to be able to support myself because there was there was a lot of financial struggle at that time. And uh, my my dad had long periods where he didn't work and my mum worked on a market stall. And it was tricky in terms of making sure that we had meals on the on the you know on the table. So I thought it was a combination, really, of wanting to make sure that we had enough um, money to be able to support ourselves but also um to be able to care for people and to know their stories and i've always been really quite a people person so for me it was going to be general practice from the beginning because i love hearing people's stories and getting to know them and understanding why they tick and the idea of general practice was so appealing because you could get to know somebody you could get to know their children you could get to know their birth story um their siblings their parents their grandparents and now i've worked in the same practice now for probably let's think it's been about 11 years now and so i've had that opportunity i've had that privilege of being able to get to know people from cradle to grave and that really appealed to me so that's the kind of medical story oh i should also point out my grandmother was a doctor that probably oh, okay yeah, my, my father's mother, she, she was a very inspirational woman and she trained in medicine at a time when women were not really highly educated at all. And she was able to achieve that and she was able to go and uh, work in India and then she worked in South Africa and in Australia. So she was hugely inspirational. So those are the two, probably the main things. Uh, and with regard to plant-based nutrition, that was another kind of roundabout story. Basically, I wanted to know more about how to help my patients. I was sensing over the years that I couldn't, that despite giving them tablets and despite feeling as though I was doing my best, there was a real social, lifestyle, societal aspect to it that I just didn't feel I was trained for. It was like my toolbox was half empty. I just couldn't help. And that really frustrated me. So I thought, well, how can I tell people about what to eat? Um, maybe how I you know how sleep can have an effect. Let's let's think about more about how to help with the psychology of illness. And so that's really my curiosity that got you know got me going in that field. And I started out where most people start, um, looking online. And with nutrition, I didn't pay that much attention to start with. I just looked at the trends and what people were saying. And so it was all about the low carb and cutting calories and calorie counting. So that's what I did for a while when I was trying to get fit and healthy. And it worked in, in a little way because I did manage to lose a lot of weight. But of course, as you and I both know, you can lose weight in many ways and it doesn't necessarily have to be a healthy way. And so um, when I stumbled upon plant-based nutrition, that's when I realized that not only could you lose weight healthily, but you could bring your lipid profiles down, you could prevent or reverse many diseases, and you could feel full. And I realized how quickly I could get results for my patients as well. And I'm talking within days, people were starting to feel better. And within weeks, their parameters were changing. And so, you know, that just fueled me further. So then I wanted to talk to the world about it. And that's, that's, that's the summary. <laughs> And that's where you are today. And that's where I am today, talking to was, you. <laughs> was there a kind of aha moment where you was like, holy crap, plant-based nutrition is the way to do this? Was there like a, because obviously through med school, you wouldn't have been taught much about nutrition. So was there a, a moment when you're like, holy crap, this is actually having a massive effect on people's lives? 
The main aha moment that I can remember is looking at an angiographic image of the coronary arteries opening up with plant-based nutrition. So the work of Dean Ornish back in the early 1990s that was published in major peer-reviewed journals and also the work of Dr. Esselstyn. Dr. Colwell Esselstyn is a very inspirational man and he was able to deal with people end-stage heart failure, end-stage heart disease and just through nutrition nothing to do with other lifestyle changes just what they put in their mouths he was able to show that they were able to reverse their coronary artery damage these people whose arteries were completely furred up they were at end of life and he was able to help them reverse that and when you see images of the coronary arteries and how they're actually completely opened up it was just remarkable and i knew from my previous research that stenting is completely useless unless you're in a um, an acute event like I think the cardiology needs to change quite significantly because there's an awful lot of evidence now to suggest that if you're stenting an artery and it's not an acute MI, basically someone's not having a heart attack or some sort of event there and then, it doesn't make any difference to long-term outcomes whatsoever. And so you think to yourself, well, what can make a difference? And it was plant-based nutrition. And of course, when I saw that, that's, that's what was really mind-blowing to me. And that's where I sort of kept on researching. I thought, how does this fit in with diabetes and how does this fit in with insulin resistance and how does this fit in with inflammation in the body and how does this fit in with peripheral arteries and what do they do and and it just you know it becomes a rabbit hole and the more you look into it the more you the, the more you understand that the evidence shows or at least certainly 95% of the diet being whole food plant-based is, is what I can definitely say the evidence shows huge support for um, so yeah, it's it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, and I guess speaking about the old school versus new school medical approaches, do you feel like there is a, I guess a change that is happening now? Do you like, I know that now in America, doctors are getting more nutritional, I guess, education. Is that the yeah. same in the UK? Like how do you think that's changing? How should it change? Oh, it definitely needs to change. <clears throat> I think it is changing. I mean, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine has been around for a long time. And recently, in the last few years, we've got the British Society of Lifestyle Medicine. And interestingly, the accreditation course is basically very similar to the ACLM accreditation. So, and that does emphasize plant-based nutrition, ultimately. And then you've got the True Health Initiative over in the US. And there are, there are many people, I think, this side of the pond are also part of the True Health Initiative. We've got the Plant-Based Health Professionals, of which I'm a, an advisory board member. And that's a new-ish organization that was set up by my friend, Dr. Shireen Kassam, who is um, a hematologist over here in the UK. And we've got um, what else is going on? We're, we're devising uh, course content for a, um, a nutrition course at Winchester University. And um, yeah, there's, there's loads of initiatives to try to bring nutrition into medical schools. I, I'm doing a, a presentation for NutriTank in Sheffield on nutrition and mental health. And I can see lots of other doctors are doing very similar things to try and bring nutrition and lifestyle measures back into um, the consciousness especially of medical students and they're actually really keen i mean anecdotally from from colleagues of mine that have been speaking to medical students they they a lot of them are really really keen to understand this because i think they're beginning to realize before they even go into practice that just doing things the way we've always done them isn't going to work um, the western model is really good for certain things you know 
I can talk highly of how antibiotics have changed the scene um, for a number of years and prevented an awful lot of deaths, but at the same time, their overuse is now causing a huge issue with chronic disease. And the same with things like if you have a car accident or if you have to have major surgery, you know, Western medicine can't be beaten, but then, in my opinion. <laughs> but then when it comes to things like chronic diseases, cancer, heart disease, our biggest killers now, then we just don't have a leg to stand on. And that's why it's so important to bring us back to these basic lifestyle principles of eating plant-based, getting enough sleep, getting rid of stress as far as we can and moving our bodies. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And do you, I guess, interact with people that don't believe, other, like other doctors that don't believe in plant-based, the plant-based approach? Because to me, kind of like when people say oh you know red meat or saturated fat isn't bad for us i'm like well why does a doctor say decrease it when you've got high this high this and got symptoms of heart disease surely that makes sense in your head that it must be you know not ideal for us to consume um so do you interact with doctors that don't believe in yes. what you believe and how does that kind of interaction go well it's difficult I, I, I really dislike the diet wars and I think that we tend to argue between us about what's healthy and what's not. I think my personal opinion is that we are all biased. We can't help it. We try not to. I certainly try not to. <laughs> but we tend to respond to what we have tried personally and then we look for data that backs up our opinion and that's human nature. And so... I would say that any doctor who advocates for red meat, be it grass fed or not, um, and that advocates for whole foods that are not from plant origin have probably had some successes personally in terms of their health, um, but they haven't read all the literature that I have, or if they have, they've discounted it because it didn't fit with their paradigm. And that's unfortunately the way that the human brain works. We have to mention bias when we go into a study. And the irony is that even when we know about the existence of bias, it can still be, um, it can still affect the way we think about studies and, and how we look at them. And um, I think a lot of doctors have been seduced by the idea that uh, saturated fats have been unfairly maligned over the years. And I think if you look at the basic principles of what saturated fat does inside the body, if you look at on a cellular level, what it does, you can see that it's probably not beneficial in excess. If you look at the cellular mechanisms behind what happens with animal protein in the body, you can also see that in excess, it's going to be unhealthy. We know from population data that there is an increased risk of cancer and heart disease in populations that have a lot of these saturated fats and meats. So you can look at it on every single level and every single pillar of evidence, and you can see, unfortunately, that there are associations and direct causations that you can find but people believe what they have experienced. So ultimately, I try to stay away from the argument because I think when over half the population eats ultra processed foods, manufactured foods that aren't in fact foods at all, um, they are manufactured by food companies that don't contain fresh produce, that don't contain whole foods, then I think we have a much bigger problem than arguing over uh, grass-fed beef um, because most people can't afford grass-fed beef most people can't afford organic chicken 
Uh, most people don't buy free range eggs. Uh, all of these are more expensive. And you know, when people are on the breadline, they're gonna buy cheap foods. And I think that is what we need to focus on. We need to focus on the fact that many people in very poor environments are not able to afford these more quality meats. Um, and they will go for cheaper meats, which have worse health outcomes again. So um, trying to get everybody to agree that if we could get more plants in people's bodies and, and less of the rest, then I think that's, that's the uniting factor that we should look at. Yeah, for sure. So when you talk about saturated fat in excess and red meat or animal proteins in excess, what is there like a definition of what that would look like? How much is too much? I think if you're looking at the optimal diet, it would be 95% plant-based. If somebody was desperate to continue to eat meat or dairy products, then it should constitute no more than 5% of what they eat if they're going to be looking at optimal health, which means that in an average week, if you're having three meals a day, seven days a week, you may be having one, maybe two meat meals. And hopefully that would be fish if you're gonna to have to do it. But my, I mean, my personal preference would be a 100% whole food plant-based diet, but I see that, that a lot of people feel that that's unattainable for them. And I get it because I used to be like that. Steak was my favorite meal. I used to love burgers. I couldn't get enough of them. It's what I'd always eat when I went out. And so I get it. I completely get it. Where people think I can't do it. It's going to be boring. It's too extreme. But I mean, I think a lot of doctors have said, you know, what's more extreme, eating more vegetables and whole grains and beans and legumes or having someone cut your chest open and, and put yeah. a vein on your leg in your heart. I don't I know which one I'd rather do. Yeah, um, or having a heart attack at 39, which is what my previous podcast, podcast guest had. And I'm like, that's pretty extreme. So yeah, I mean, my father died of a massive heart attack and he was you know, he was in his 50s. You know, he, he was driving and he had a, a little car accident. It wasn't a major car accident, but obviously his cortisol levels shot up. His coronary arteries probably went into spasm and he had furred up arteries anyway. And, you know, that was it. That was the end of my dad. And the same with my grandfather. You know, so the, and you're right. You know, these things affect so many of us. And I, I don't think there's anybody in this country that doesn't have a relative that's died either of heart disease or cancer. Uh, and and that's what a whole food plant-based diet can prevent. So that's why I'm so passionate. Um, but I suppose to answer your initial question, I think if someone is insisting that they can't live without meat, then they'd probably be okay if they had it once or twice a week. Okay, cool. And talking about these other doctors that you love having discussions with, why do you think they feel like, like you've said, there's a bias and you've read the research. I've probably read the keto research i've read you know observational studies and that kind of thing why do you think that they still are i guess in favor of that way and i think the second part to this question is obviously like you said if we go from a processed diet to a diet that is of whole foods yes animal proteins that kind of thing even one that is ketogenic people are going to see results they're going to lose weight and their lipids might go down their blood sugar might go down and that kind of thing. Do you think that's exclusively because they've actually lost weight or is it because of the keto diet or because of a plant-based diet? Okay, so there's a few parts to the question. I think if we go into, if we talk about ketosis, you're absolutely right. People lose weight. And so any method of losing weight improves health in the short term because we know that obesity is one of the major risk factors for heart disease and cancer. 
And the ketogenic diet cuts out uh, junk. It cuts out sugary foods. It cuts out refined flour. Um, it cuts out um, a lot of the junk foods that people might already be eating. And it may also increase the amount of greens that they eat alongside their, their, their fat sources. Um, so with ketogenic diets, I think the, the, it's a more extreme version of the low carb diet. Basically, you probably know all this, but it's a high fat diet. So you want to be getting about 70 to 80% of your calories through fat uh, and only moderate amounts of protein. And I think this is where a lot of people who think that they're doing a ketogenic diet aren't really because they're, they're sort of um, stocking up on things like bacon, which um, you know, has an awful lot of um, animal protein as well. Um, and it's a very, very low carbohydrate diet. So what it does is, I mean, if you're in true ketosis, ideally you'd be having daily measurements of the ketones in your urine to make sure that you're actually fat adapted. So the body uses sugar and it uses fat for fuel uh, and it prefers to use sugar or glucose, especially the brain. Um, but if you put into a state of starvation, which is what the ketogenic diet mimics, then you're going to be using fat instead. And that's where the brain then gets energy from. Um, so you think, well, why do people, why are people so keen on it? And again, I, I don't want to be the person that discounts people's personal experience. So, you know, when someone does well on ketosis, it's probably because they've lost some weight. Um, initially you, you would lose a lot of water weight in the short term. And if you haven't had what they call keto flu, which is like sort of tummy upsets and bad breath and constipation and aches and pains and brain fog, once you've managed to get through that, then you know, you might be feeling pretty good because especially if you're diabetic, you'd have a flat line blood sugar because you're not having any sugars. And then you've got a flat line insulin and then your HbA1c's are going down, your average blood sugar. So you're thinking, oh, great, this is working, fantastic. But <laughs> there's, there's a big but. And I think the problem that people find with a ketogenic diet is that they're actually becoming more insulin resistant, but they just don't know it. And so they think that they're doing well, but then the next time they try to test their body out by having a bowl of quinoa or, or maybe, you know, a bite of a banana, their blood sugars go through the roof and then they blame the banana. They think, oh, that was, you know, that was unfortunate. Uh, I won't have bananas again, but actually what's happened is their insulin receptors are no longer working. Uh, they've been clogged up, basically clogged up by the saturated fat. Um, and so it doesn't matter how much insulin that you then make, the sugar is stuck in the bloodstream. It doesn't get into the cells where it's needed. It doesn't go into the muscles. It doesn't go into the brain. It doesn't go anywhere else because it's stuck in the blood because your insulin receptors aren't working anymore. And as soon as you remove those saturated fats from the bloodstream or the junk food fats, then the insulin receptors are able to work again and the glucose from the bloodstream goes nicely into the cells and no more high blood sugars. So... You can get a flat line HbA1c basically by cutting out the sugar, but you've still got the underlying problem, or you cut out the saturated fat and then you free up the insulin receptors and then you reduce your HbA1c's that way. Um, but you know, I think keto isn't going away, I think because people do get results with it, but I do worry about the long-term problems with it because it was, it was developed, do you want me to talk about the history of it at all? Yeah, I mean, I think I do know the history, but it's worth you covering it so that people listening can understand the history. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, it's <laughs> it was, it was, 
I mean, it, it, it came to it came to usefulness back in the 1920s. You know, there's a lot of children that that had refractory epilepsy, and they responded to a ketogenic diet. And interestingly, a lot of people don't realise that I think probably one of the mechanisms why that worked is because, or why it still works for, for children that don't respond to medication, is because of the link with the microbiome. So they did these studies on rats, and what they found was that they, when they induced a ketogenic diet on rats. Who, who who had epilepsy that they had also induced um it's very cruel this stuff um mm. but they they were able to to establish that if the rats didn't have acomantia species in their guts if they were given antibiotics to kill off all the bacteria in their guts that they didn't respond to ketogenic diet anymore so i think that there is a complicated interplay between the types of bacteria that we cultivate in our small and large intestine, especially the large intestine, and our response to different diets. And conversely, the things that we put in our mouths can then alter our microbiome and alter our long-term health. Um, but with a ketogenic diet, you've got the risks of kidney stones, you've got the risk of pancreatitis, atherosclerosis, osteopenia, cardiomyopathy, and there's five case studies of children who had to stay on true ketogenic diets because of their epilepsy that also had deaths as a result of their ketogenic diet. So this is not something to be taken lightly, definitely not something to do long term. Um, and yeah, I think I worry that people who, who have been duped into doing it for a period of six months, maybe a year, end up finding that when they come off it, their insulin problems are worse than when they began. Yeah, that's exactly what I've learned as well um, about diabetes and that kind of thing is you can treat the symptom or you can treat the cause. And treating the symptom is ketogenic. Treating the cause is decrease your saturated fat, basically. And yeah. other things, exercise, lose weight, that process stuff. Um, well, what's interesting as well about ketogenic diet, um, people talk about the, uh, there's something called a PGC1-alpha pathway, which basically makes your mitochondria more active. And people talk about the benefits of ketosis for this. So your mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, well, they're more than just the powerhouse of the cell, but they are an ancient kind of um, bacterial species that combine with the cell and, and allowed for multicellular organisms. So they're pretty integral to life. And they can, they can get lazy. And when they get lazy, they can't multiply properly and they don't sort of kill off the ones that are not working. And the idea behind why some people respond quite well to ketosis is because that, that state of mimic starvation activates this PGC1-alpha pathway, which then causes these mitochondria to eat up the ones that don't work and multiply to make more good young mitochondria. And there's loads of them that can live in the cell. It's not just one. I don't know if you saw biology textbooks when you were younger you may remember yeah you're remembering you're making me remember my my bachelor of science mitochondria yeah. and all that <laughs> you might have a picture of maybe one mitochondria or mitochondria, mm. mitochondria. Yeah. but you know you can actually have hundreds in a cell or not um and so yeah that pathway the pgc1 alpha pathway that can also be stimulated by many other mechanisms so you've got time restricted feeding where you only eat within a certain time window each day say eight hours 10 hours 12 hours or you've got intermittent fasting or you've got things like cold plunges or in terms of food you've got things like curcumin from turmeric you've got quercetin which is um, a really good um compound from certain vegetables um, um even massage actually <laughs> could potentially activate this pgc1 alpha pathway so 
there are many other ways in which to stimulate your mitochondria to work properly and in the long term we know that saturated fat actually can inhibit mitochondrial function so i don't see ketosis as being anything more than a short-term fix for anyone even people who are proponents have to cycle in and out of it because your body just cannot live in this um, induced starvation state and i think a lot of people don't even get into ketosis they just have a low carb like you said low carb high fat moderate protein diet and they still think that that is kind of healthy and to me whenever i get the question about vegan keto or vegan low carb diet i'm kind of like well i know which foods make us healthy i know which foods protect us against diseases and by trying to be in a vegan keto state you're kind of decreasing those those whole grains those beans legumes and that kind of thing is that kind of your view on if somebody was trying to attempt a vegan ketosis kind of state um how yeah. would you kind of advise i think it's probably healthier than having one that's meat heavy because you're excluding the sources of um i mean for example if you're on a meat heavy keto diet you're going to have excess animal proteins you know, excess methionine, excess leucine, which you know is associated with cellular aging, with, with um, the propagation of cancer cells. You've got excess carnitine, which causes you to create these gut bugs in your stomach that can eat um, carnitine and thus cause an inflammatory toxin. Um, you've got new 5GC, which is another inflammatory compound in meat. You've got the nitrites, if you've got processed meat, which are also cancer causing. So, you're removing all of that, which is beneficial, I would say, clearly. Um, but you're right, whole grains and, and legumes, uh, beans, lentils, chickpeas are the cornerstone of every long-lived population on this planet. So if you're aiming to cut them out in the long term and just have things like coconut oil and you know, olive oil and avocados and nuts and seeds and you're really an olives, you know, you're really kind of limiting yourself and having that kind of elimination diet, I think is clearly not the way to go long-term. Again, perhaps somebody wants to do it for short-term weight loss. If they want to do it for short-term weight loss and they feel like they can cope and that's what they would enjoy, then go for it. Uh, but any more than a few months, then you're going to be looking at potentially um, reducing your overall longevity. Okay, cool. You mentioned lucian, and I know that soy or endamami beans are high in lucian. So, does that have the same effect on the body if it's coming from a plant source versus an animal source? So, soybeans, I think, have an unfair reputation. <laughs> lucine from animal sources has been shown to um, propagate cancer cells and advance cellular aging. Um, I think that the, the genistein from, um, from soy is actually quite protective for the body. It's been associated with a reduced risk of cancer and the phytoestrogens within soy also have been associated with reduced risk of, of uh, breast cancer, reduced hormonal flushes, um, increased bone strength, <laughs> which is something that you know, people go on about how you need dairy for calcium in actual fact, Oh, I can tell you about a study I read recently. Uh, they, they, they measured the bone mineral density of perimenopausal women, and they had a control group who had just had their normal diet, followed them for a couple of years. They had a group that had a cup of soy milk a day, and they had a group that were given a progesterone cream, and they wanted to see which ones had the best bone mineral density after a couple of years. And what they discovered 
was that the group who had who had nothing, who were the control group, as you might expect, their bone mineral density went down. Uh, the group that had the progesterone cream, as you may expect, they had some protection. Their bone mineral density did not go down as much. But the soy milk drinking group had increased bone mineral density. So I, mean, I think that's a pretty remarkable study. But basically, yeah, I don't see the same effects playing out with soy. Mm, that's very interesting because, yeah, like you said, we need dairy to have strong bones. Um, and yet the countries or the nations that contain the most dairy or consume the most dairy are linked with the highest rates of osteoporosis. What do you put that down to? Because I know we have this, this thing that, you know, when our body's acidic, when we have animal protein, the calcium needs to kind of neutralize it and buffer that acidity. Is that the mechanism that is doing that or you're not really sure? You're right. I think, I mean, the hip fracture rates do tend to be higher in countries that consume more dairy. And it, it seems like quite a, a bit of a paradox because we've always been told you need calcium from milk. Um, I mean, the Harvard Nurses Health Study followed, oh gosh, I think around 70,000 women over the course of nearly 20 years. And I know that's epidemiological data and you can't prove causation, but there was absolutely no protection um, from bone fracture in those groups of women. Um, and then there was a Swedish study as well of, of 100,000 people and they followed them for 20 years. And what they discovered was that there was a, there was a strong correlation between those that had the, the most dairy and those that had increased mortality, increased heart disease, increased cancer risk. And in women, there was an increased fracture risk in that population. And they didn't find the same pattern with yogurt. So there's potentially a link with galactose there because the galactose sugars in dairy are fermented in, in yogurt. And so yogurt contains far less of those. So I think that, that, that you could postulate there that, um, that the galactose, because you know from lab studies, if you look at galactose and what it does to cells in the lab, you can see that it causes premature aging of the cells in lab animals. It can cause increased oxidative stress. And so if you're removing some of that galactose from the dairy in the form of yogurt, then perhaps you know, that might be one mechanism by which it's more protective. Um, sorry, I'll just turn my, I think I just, it's <laughs> doing beeping over there. Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think we, we, we can get more bioavailable calcium from plant sources ultimately. Um, I think I read that you can absorb around 50 or more than 50% of the calcium from plant sources compared to about 30% from dairy. Yeah, um, I think it was um, from certain plants like kale, Swiss chard and pop choy were the top, top three. Yeah, absolutely. And there's loads of other things. I mean, I'm trying to think of a list on top, off the top of my head. You've got um, beans. Beans, you've got sesame seeds, almonds, almonds um, squash, Brazil nuts. Uh, coconut, <coughs> celery, <laughs> dates, apricots, you know, there's just, there's loads of sources of calcium. So as long as you're more mindful of it uh, and you're making sure you've got a nice variety of plant foods, then I don't think calcium is anything to worry about. Yeah. And it's already in our plant-based milk anyway, because it's fortified with it. So there yes. it is. I mean, I think actually there is one thing you might need to look at and that's iodine um, because there's people say that with with cow's milk the reason that, that that it contains iodine is because of the iodine they use to um to cleanse the milk vats that they collect the cow's milk in um so 
if you're not getting iodine from that source, which doesn't sound particularly appealing to me, <laughs> <laughs> then you want to make sure you're getting it from somewhere else. So just think about iodine if you're on a plant-based diet. So you get iodine from um, nori sheep that you use to wrap sushi. You can get them just in nowadays. You can get them in the supermarket. Just little crackers. Yeah, little crackers. You can nibble on those. Uh, you can get kelp, but I think you have to be a little bit careful with kelp supplements because you can either have too yeah. much yeah and you want to make sure you've got enough selenium so brazil nuts are brilliant because you can get selenium from those as well um but if you're not sure you know because we do live in very nutrient depleted soils these days you know the, the environment is not what it used to be like you could potentially get enough iodine from a potato if it's grown in a, a mineral rich soil compared mm. to a glass of milk or something like that but if yeah i just um recommend to my clients just every now and then have some iodized salt on your food yeah yeah that works i mean it's salt table salt in the uk isn't iodized but you can get it and it's it yeah actually, i've bought some it says uh, big words <laughs> yeah yeah and what's quite nice about it is if you were to sprinkle that on it does give it a somewhat eggy flavor to, to things if you miss if you're one of these people that miss eggs <laughs> so okay. yeah another option cool i want to backtrack a little bit and i know we didn't talk about this before but correlation and causation a lot of people would say oh but that's study doesn't prove anything because it doesn't show causation. Um, it just shows a relationship or a positive correlation between those two. Is, I kind of feel like that is the way that we as humans have used a lot of our research. Like no one's going to try and test for pregnancy or um, lung cancer by finding a study that actually causes lung cancer or that kind of thing. Would you say that I mean, we kind of just need to accept that correlation might be the best that we can do with research for long-term studies. I think long-term epidemiological studies are important. Um, if they weren't important, they wouldn't exist. We have to look for patterns. And I think once you start looking for patterns, it's a good idea to then follow those patterns and see if you can find your hypothesis being supported when you look at a cellular level. And the beauty of a lot of the plant-based research is that when you look at these correlations, so for example, when I talk about the correlations in the um, Harvard Nurses Health Studies or the Swedish study I mentioned, or even, um, I mean, even the Physician's Health Study. Okay, let's take prostate cancer as an example. So you've got the Physician's Health Study. They followed nearly 22,000 people over nearly 30 years. And what they found was that if you had two and a half servings of dairy a day versus if you had less than half a serving, you had a much higher risk of getting prostate cancer, or at least there was a, there was a correlation between the incidence of prostate cancer and the increasing consumption of dairy. So you think, well, okay, that doesn't prove anything. But then you look at what happens under the microscope and you realize that Prostate cancer is strongly linked to IGF-1 and to casein protein. Casein protein comes from dairy. Um, IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1, is found in milk. And when you eat meat, you make IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1. And you can see that when you put these things in a laboratory setting, they stimulate cancer growth. So <laughs> what frustrates me when people say it doesn't prove anything is that you know, if, if someone could show me that a plant-based diet causes cancer cells to proliferate, uh, then you know, I'm all ears. But no one's managed to find that because the evidence does not exist. Um, so 
what I like to look at is the totality of evidence. I like to look at every kind of pillar of evidence. You've got epidemiological data, it is useful, but you can also look at what happens inside the cell. You can look at what happens in randomized controlled trials, crossover trials, um, and then you start to put all the pieces together and then you can observe that your hypothesis works. And that's why I think plant-based nutrition is superior because there are many ways in which you can prove that it is a logical hypothesis. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's true. It's like if one study shows something, it doesn't mean too much. But if there's hundreds of studies that have been done different ways showing the same thing, then that's obviously, that kind of means something, right? Yeah, because you, you, you have to look at the totality. I mean, the, I think they did over 7,000 studies to prove that smoking could be correlated with poorer outcomes and increased cancer risk. But they've never done a randomized controlled trial to prove it. That's never been done. But we know, we know from the totality of the evidence that smoking is harmful and smoking can cause cancers. Um, and it's not, you, you could ignore the evidence until you're blue in the face or you could just try and stop smoking. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I mean, the same thing applies to this, really. Um, there are so many potential mechanisms for, um, for harm. So, I mean, people get very emotional about meat. I think that's the other problem. Meat, meat has been associated with being rich. It's been associated with, um, with, with being able to afford um, a kind of food that you know, the masses don't afford. And so there's, there's a big emotional attachment to it. It tastes good to people. And I think, it, I think they, they struggle to find, um, they struggle to look at it logically, I think. And I was the same. I used, to, I used to have an emotional attachment and didn't think I could live without it. But um, I think that's what a lot of scientists do, unfortunately. And it's, a, it's what a lot of people do. So. It's a tough one, but um, if you just keep looking at the science, then it, it does hold up, unfortunately. Yeah, and some of that science, which I, to me, is kind of like to prove that a plant-based diet is long-term healthy, is the Blue Zone groups. Um, and I'm trying to get the, the author of the Blue Zone research on my podcast, and until I get him, what do you think is the main key points that we can pull from that research? Now, obviously, there's five Blue Zones four of them have a plant-based diet that's 95% plants. One of them has all plants. Um, and how does that compare to, I guess, the other long living populations of say the Eskimo people and people? Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm sure one day you'll get Dan on the show. <laughs> <laughs> I have emailed him. I have put, it emailed out, him. put it out there. It's going to happen one day. Yeah. Um, I have the pleasure of seeing him talk at an event, actually, and um, his wonderful lady friend, Kathy Preston, she is amazing. Um, but yeah, I also had the pleasure of speaking to one of the researchers who um, studied the Okinawan Blue Zone. So what they all have in common in terms of nutrition, as you say, is 95% plant-based nutrition. The Adventists have 100% plant-based, those who have the longest lives. Um, it's not just about food. There's a certain lifestyle associated with it. There's that joy de vivre, um, or there's um, the ikagi, I think it's called ikagai, um, which is the, the Japanese word um, for sort of finding purpose in life. Um, and so yeah, there is a lot more to it, but what they all have in common in terms of food is that they all have uh, beans, chickpeas, or lentils every day. They have whole grains, they have they have vegetables, they have fruit, they have food that is locally grown, 
um, and they have seasonal food. And interestingly, four of the five blue zones are islands. So if we can't all live on an island, we can follow the advice of the largest and potentially most successful blue zone, which is the Adventists. They don't live on an island. They live in a fairly average um, borough of California. It's not by the beach. <laughs> um, and what they have um, is a really, really wholesome plant-based lifestyle. Um, and that's what I think Dan Butner was able to um, understand when he was studying that. Um, and I would strongly recommend that, that people look at that research because the Adventists have got a tremendous amount of research behind them to show Yes, they've got a great positive attitude. They've got good community links. They have, a lot of them have a religious faith, um, but they all eat plants. And um, we talk about the Inuit um, or even the Hadza tribe. So people, are, people in sort of paleo circles talk about Hadza tribes and how they eat meat, so we have to eat meat. But actually they eat a tremendous amount of fiber. Most of what they eat is fiber filled, fiber rich. And the same with Paleolithic man. If you look at Paleolithic fossilized, um, well, poo samples basically, <laughs> what you notice is that it's all fiber and we are tremendously fiber deficient um, here in the Western world. Guidelines tell us to have about 30 grams a day. We have more like 15 if we're lucky. Uh, and these ancient, um, you know, the Hadza tribe and even Paleolithic man, they had around more like 100 to 150 grams. They were having so much plant matter. And I think that's what we really need to focus on is the fact that we're not getting enough fiber, we're not getting enough fruits, vegetables, whole grains and beans. And that is the cornerstone of the diets of those that live the longest. The Inuit are a very interesting uh, subset. And I've noticed that um, people who advocate for saturated fat and animal-based diets have stopped talking about the Inuits because they realize that they don't actually have a higher longevity. They have a very low life expectancy on average. And they also have a genetic mutation which prevents them from going into ketosis. And so they are genetically adapted to eat a lot of meat and not go into ketosis, which is another reason why I would suggest that ketogenic diets are not good long-term. Because the yes, the, you know, the Inuit populations had to essentially adapt to have to eat a lot of meat in these harsh conditions at the edge of the world. Most of us don't live in those harsh, harsh conditions. Most of us don't have those genetic adaptations. Um, most of us respond to plant foods, and that's what we've forgotten. Mm. I mean, I think we've kind of covered a lot of stuff that people that are already vegan or plant-based probably know a little bit about. So. I think it's worth covering stuff that maybe they need to be a little bit more careful with. Like we've talked about iodine, selenium from Brazil nuts. If somebody is vegan or plant-based, what things do they need to kind of make sure they're actually doing to be as healthy as possible? They need to take a B12 supplement, I would suggest. Some people don't have a B12 supplement. And uh, I saw an interview with the amazing ultra marathon runner, Fiona Oakes, who has done tremendous feats of physical endurance. And she said that she doesn't take any supplements whatsoever, including B12. I think to be on the safe side, it's important to take a B12 supplement. Uh, many vegans will probably already know that, but it's made from microbes in the soil. So if we're not eating unwashed vegetables and fruits and we're not drinking untreated water, which I wouldn't recommend that we do, then we're not going to get enough B12. So 
I would recommend a B12 supplement for everybody. And also many meat eaters are B12 deficient, especially if they're over the age of 50, especially if they take proton pump inhibitor medication, especially if they're on metformin for diabetes, they're gonna find themselves struggling to absorb B12 from the meat that they are eating. So yes, I would definitely recommend B12. The other thing that people tend to forget and that I would strongly recommend is an omega-3 source. So would you like me to talk a bit more about omega-3s? Can do. Yeah, I mean, there is a great post on my Instagram about this. Um, but <laughs> you talk about it and I'll make sure that everything that's on there is correct. So. <laughs> <laughs> the test, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... You've got omega-3 fatty acids uh, from plants, ALA, and they are things like flax seeds, chia seeds, walnuts, hemp seeds, and they're a really useful source of omega-3 fatty acids. You have to convert them into EPA and DHA in the body, which are the long chain fatty acids. So you basically have to convert that. Some people are not so good at that conversion. Um, fertile females are probably the best. But having said that, I would still recommend if somebody was pregnant that they, they take an EPA DHA supplement because it's very important for the baby's brain development. Um, so yeah, I would suggest EPA DHA supplement from an algae source because that's where the fish get it from. Uh, fish swimming in the ocean, they've got omega-3s in their muscles, in their liver, because of the algae that they eat in the ocean. So if you take an algae-based EPA DHA supplement, you're not getting any of the heavy metals or the dioxins from the fish flesh, you're just getting the pure omega-3s. There was a study I read recently about how people who eat a lot of fish actually don't end up doing much in the way of conversion because they're eating the fish, which I thought was quite interesting because Many of us have adapted not to live near the sea. So you have to think, well, why is it that many people have not been omega-3 deficient in the past? Is it, you know, it can't be because they were eating fish when they weren't. And they upregulate, it turns out that they probably upregulated their omega-3 short chain to omega-3 long chain conversion. So you can potentially up and down regulate it depending on what you're eating. And that's quite interesting because I've interviewed Fiona and she did tell me she doesn't take any supplements. And I was like, wow, how do you, how do you run these, how do you run these ultra marathons and not do it? And I was just surprised, but like what I do say to everybody is like, it's not worth the risk. Like there's such affordable supplements. It's just not worth the risk of being deficient on them. Cause you know, if you do have a deficiency that is life changing. Yeah. Um, one thing that I was deficient in when I actually had my blood test done two months ago was vitamin D. And I think maybe you could cover that quickly. Vitamin D is definitely one to think about. So the three, the three things I like to think about for people is B12, Vit D and EPA DHA. Vitamin D is a problem for a lot of people. It's not it's not just a problem for people on a plant-based diet because most of the vitamin D is supposed to come from sunlight. It's actually a hormone that our bodies make through sunlight exposure primarily. And so when you think about the fact that 90% of the vitamin D that you synthesize is through sunlight exposure on your skin, and then you think about the fact that most of us are indoors most of the time, then it kind of makes sense that we're going to have a problem with vitamin D, especially if you've got darker skin, especially if you're living in a part of the world 
where the sunlight is not strong enough. So living in the UK, for example, the sunlight is pretty much guaranteed not to be strong enough in the winter months. There's a simple rule of thumb that you can use if you're, especially in the summer months, if you're going to be getting out in the sunshine to try and get your vitamin D requirements. If your shadow is longer than your body, you're probably not going to be able to make vitamin D. If your shadow is shorter than your body, that's when you're likely to be able to make vitamin D through your skin. Most of the day, your shadow is going to be longer than your body. Most of the time, the sun's going to be behind lots of clouds. <laughs> is that, is that evidence-based research just there? That is the <laughs> um, shadow test. <laughs> but I think the bottom line is it doesn't do any harm to take a vitamin D supplement and you don't want to be deficient because it affects not only bone strength, but it can also have a strong effect on our immune system, immune regulation and other issues within the body. So it's worth getting it tested, to be honest. I think that anyone on any kind of diet should probably get their vitamin D tested. That's coming from a GP. So I might get other GPs listening to this having a big sigh and rolling their eyes. But I do think it's worth checking vitamin D because I was vitamin D deficient years ago. This is when I was, you know, I was eating what you'd call an omnivorous diet and I was in the sun. I had a bit of a tan, you know, I'm fair skinned. You wouldn't think it would be a problem for me, but I still had a low vitamin D then. So it's definitely worth checking that, taking a supplement, unless you're going to be on a constant holiday in the Caribbean. Yeah. And I think another point worth mentioning as well is we're assuming that the people that need these supplements are having a pretty varied whole food plant-based diet. If they are just vegan and they're having high processed vegan foods, then they're probably going to need a lot more supplements if they decide that they just want to be vegan for the animal welfare um, and just have the vegan junk food. Yeah, absolutely. You're not going to be getting any of the, this is the problem. You're not going to be getting any of the health benefits that I've talked about in this interview. If you, regularly enjoy the vegan junk food it's just not going to happen um you're not going to get enough of the folate and the b vitamins and the magnesium and the calcium and all of those incredible vitamins and minerals that you get from a variety of whole plant-based foods because you're not eating them you're basically eating more processed foods junk foods you're going to be having high levels of something in the blood called homocysteine which increases risk of inflammation and you don't have any benefit in terms of life expectancy. So I would suggest really hopefully transitioning. So it's, it's tough for people, you know, when they're, when they're going from a standard Western diet, it's really difficult to think, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna eat all healthy whole foods because your gut bugs are not adapted to it. And your, your taste buds are not yet adapted to it. And it's, it's really hard. So I think having a little bit of the vegan junk food to start with in that transition period is probably a good tool for some people as they, as they move over to a whole food plant-based diet. But then hopefully with time, they'll be having loads more of the way of fruits and vegetables um, and you know, whole grains and, and legumes and herbs and spices and nuts and seeds and all of those things and uh, less of the rest. Good answer. Um, last question, and then we can you know, call it. If you were on death row, what would be your final meal? Well, that's a really good question. 
Somebody asked me, <laughs> somebody asked me the other day if I was on a desert island and all I could eat was one. <laughs> I said, like, the first thing that popped into my head was a Buddha bowl because it has everything you need. Everything in one meal. Yeah. The whole grains, the fruits, the vegetables, all that. But if I'm on death row and I don't need everything, <laughs> it was literally my last meal. God. I don't know. Let me think. I tell you what. Um, I had a really. Now, what did I have the other day, which I really liked? There was. Oh yeah, that's right. I went into this really lovely restaurant in London, and they gave me this incredible. Um, it was like an aubergine dish, and I absolutely loved it. Um, probably some sort of tagine with some apricots, maybe some prunes. I love that stuff. And then they served me up with this delicious chocolate brownie with salted caramel vegan ice cream. And it was really yummy. So I think I'd probably go for that if I was not really thinking about, you know, living much longer. <laughs> that would probably be my choice. What was the name of the restaurant? Um, it was, it was the, the Gate at Marylebone. Oh, I went there for New Year's Eve. That was Did my New Year's you? Eve dinner, the five course, oh five course, the five course meal. So you've probably had the very meal. I right? haven't had that. I haven't had that. They had a special menu and it was not that, but the dessert was very good. Yeah, that's, that's what I think I might have. If they would make it for me. I don't know what I've done. To <laughs> Maybe they wouldn't want to make it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, with that, I think that is more than enough um, facts and fun for tonight. So thank you so much, Gemma, for... Um, taking the time to be on this podcast and help educate people a little bit more with plant-based diets. It's my absolute joy and pleasure, Aaron. And I think that you do fantastic work. So thank you for having me. That's all right. And hopefully I'll see you soon. Yeah. Go to the gate. Have mm. that yummy, yummy <laughs> <It's> <laughs> our final meal. We have to have this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. See ya. Bye. And that's all for today, guys. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Of course, we'll see you next week. If you have questions or want to find out more information about working with me, check out my Instagram at thevegan underscore coach, my website, thevegancoach.org, or just check out my Facebook page. Have a great day and see you next week.